0: If you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, So, Valentine's Day is Tuesday. Men, if you're just finding out about this, it's too late. Um, I called last week to make reservations, and I mean, I fought tooth and nail to get one. If you're you're two weeks out, you're too late. Uh, But that's not at all what we're talking about this morning. We're going to talk about a different kind of love, a better kind of love. Um, I know that as Valentine's Day rolls around, we begin to consider things. Um, we begin to buy hearts and, and chocolate and, um, and, I don't know, flowers, other types of things. We try to bestow gifts to one another to let them know that we love and we care for them. And it's really almost a good time to evaluate some things in your life. I mean, we, we really do surround ourselves with this concept of love. I mean, we live in a culture, uh, I, I think of not too long ago, some uh, pop culture. There was a man who stood on a stage that said, love is love is love is love. And I laughed at that. Because love is what God defines it to be. And as we come to this text, we're not looking at the love between um, a man and a woman. We're not looking at the love between um, brothers and sisters. We are looking at the love between God and his church. And it is the highest love that we can pause to evaluate. And I think that honestly, we far too often or far too rarely do this. Here's the question. When was the last time you paused and considered the love of God for you? I mean, you really stopped and kind of basked in that. I mean, really, we, we accept these things and we say, yes, God loves us. But when was the last time you allowed that to impact you? And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to examine a text, um, a beautiful text about the measure of love that God has for his church. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at a couple of things that the apostle tells us to pay very close attention to. Now, last time I, I preached, I, I told you that I'm not very good with giving you notes. So, if you have your notes, do this for me. Uh, Take a pen or something like that and just mark out the first point. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I have to turn those in on Thursday, but God can do a lot in three days. And, uh, and so, I confess to you, I made a little alteration. And so what we're going to do before we dive into how God loves us and exactly what he wants from us, we're going to um, examine the command that the apostle gives. But before we do that, let's read the text. If you would and you are physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. Lord, I confess that there is absolutely no authority in me apart from it. Lord, there's no reason for anyone to stand and proclaim anything apart from your word, for it is uh, believing comes through hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And so, Father, we celebrate that you've given your church everything necessary for true worship. And so, Father, would you guide us in your word this morning? Would you make much of Christ? Would you allow our hearts to celebrate the love that he has purchased for us? And God, above all, we ask, would you... By your word, sanctify us that we might be more faithful witnesses in our world. Uh, So, Father, I confess to you weakness, and I will boast all the more gladly in it that Christ's power may rest upon me. And so, Father, I ask you, I plead with you, use a frail servant to proclaim a bold message. It is in the name of Christ, and through his blood we pray. Amen. may be seated. So the first thing I want to do is really walk through the command, because when we come to... Uh, 1 John chapter 3, rarely do we see it as a command. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's almost like when we read it, we want to kind of take a passing glance at that. It's not something that we're meant to meditate on. But as you look at this passage, the see there is actually an imperative. It is the Apostle John telling, hey, pause and take special notice of this. And understand the culture that he's writing in. He's writing in a day when many people are starting to question their salvation. They're they're starting to maybe even fret, like, when is the Lord actually coming back? There's a lot of difficult situations that are going on. And so when the Apostle John writes, he's writing to them to encourage them and to point out some things that prove that they are actually in Christ. Anybody in here ever had doubts about their salvation? Maybe you, you, know, you, you find yourself in a, in a situation where you've sinned, you've rebelled against God, and, and, and maybe you, you begin to question whether you actually are in Christ or not. Or maybe you even just feel so isolated from everybody else that that, that, that grief, that pain just really impacts you. And so what I'm trying to point out here is this isn't a message just for this, the recipients of this letter when it was given. This is a message given to us today. And if the apostle thought it was necessary that these individuals that received this letter stopped and meditated on the love of God, how much more so should we? It is a command to stop and meditate. So you see, it's a command, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. So I want you to notice the word love there. The word love there is agape. Agape. Many of you are familiar with this. It's the the God love that we talk about so frequently. But what I love in this command is he says, see what kind, the King James says, see what manner or how great a love he has for us. The reason I like this is because he's almost pointing out that your word, agape, is not sufficient to really delve the depths of the great love that he has for you. He's encouraging you to take special note of, look very deeply at this love, this agape, because it's far greater. And I love the hymn, uh, The Love of God. It says, The love of God is far greater than tongue or pen can ever tell. So let me go ahead and make a disclaimer here real quickly. We are going to consider the love of God, and I confess to you that when we are done, we will have barely touched the subject. And I say that with the greatest of joy, because I cannot explain and and completely illustrate the love that God has for you. It is an impossibility for this fallen man. But praise be to God, there is a great love that is still, still being searched out, and by God's grace, we will have eternity to know it more. And so as we look at this text, it is the see what kind of love, this deep love, this deep agape the Father has given to us. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to the us. And, and let me explain this. So John is really explicit with his purpose of writing. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, it says this. He's kind of giving the sum. Why am I writing this letter? Why should you, what, what am I trying to get you to see here? And so he writes this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe, first of all, pay attention, you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Who is the us that he is writing to? He is writing to those who believe. Now, I want you to understand where we're going with this. I am not saying in any way, shape, form, or fashion that God does not love everyone. Not at all what I'm saying. I am saying that there is a unique love given to his church. A deep affection that he has for his church. And for some reason, for the sake of inclusivity, we have kind of written this off. But man, we have neglected this great love because we want people to feel like they're included in it. But friends, they can be included in it if they place their faith in Christ. This is why we share the gospel. And so for us, we must be people who say, man, what great love God has for all creation. But how much more so does he love his church, his bride? To make this a little bit more clear, I have many women that I love dearly in my life, such as my mother and my sister. But there is a unique love that I have for my bride. And if if I didn't, that would be weird. You are to have a unique love for your bride. In the exact same way, God has a unique, deep affection for his church. And so as we pause to consider this, what we're going to look at is exactly what the apostle commands that we look at. We're going to look at the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption is one of my favorite things to consider. So let's start Looking So the very first point that you're actually going to fill in is it is an adopting love. The great love that God has for you is an adopting love. Its desire is to bring you into the family. Now let me give you two ways, two main reasons. Uh, I'm giving you three. Three reasons that, that you can really stop and look and examine what great love God has for you. First of all is its Source. Understand the source of this great love. Understand the source of this adopting love. It comes from the finished work of Christ. And had God not sinned, I want you to notice the language: only begotten Son, He would not have adopted you. Its source comes from the finished work of Christ on the cross. It is through his finished work that you are justified, that your sin is paid for in full, but far greater than that, that you have the imputed righteousness, the the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. It completely flows from Jesus. Now that's a great love to consider because he takes ruined sinners and he he sends his only begotten so that he might have ruined sinners as sons. What a beautiful love. So its source is one. Secondly is its lack of necessity. Let me explain. For you to be saved, church, faith is necessary. Grace is necessary. All of this flows from the finished work of Christ in justification and imputation. You've been justified. Your sin has been paid for in full. You have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Those are the things that are necessary for your salvation. Adoption isn't. Adoption is not necessary for you to wait the king's table understand that the beauty of this doctrine the beauty of the truth that we've been adopted into the family of God is that it wasn't even necessary for you to be saved you could be saved and just be servants in his kingdom all your days and may I say I'm good with that that makes perfect sense to me there's i mean like there would be no rebellion in my heart if God regenerated my soul and said come be my servant forever and i mean like let's go but that was not enough because God did not desire servants. He desired sons and daughters. And so I want you to pay very close attention to John chapter 1, verse 12, just to illustrate this fact. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So these people that he's writing to, John's writing to in his gospel, these are people that have believed and received Christ. That's what's necessary for salvation. But then notice what it says. He gave the right, the Greek there even says, power to become children of God. It was not necessary. so why are we adopted into his family? Because he has a great love. See what manner, see, what magnitude, see what, what great love we have, that God in His infinite love and mercy, says, "I don't want them just waiting my table. I want them dining with me as sons and daughters." What a joy it is. I mean, have you stopped to consider this? And and let me explain this real quickly because I I, I feel like we've we've lost something. Perhaps it seems like I'm splitting hairs in salvation here. Salvation, we're regenerated, we come to faith in Christ, and he saves us, we're justified, then he sanctifies us, all these things are happening. But more often than not, the Christian's more than okay with saying, I'm saved, and that's fantastic, we should rejoice in that. But how sad is it that we never stop to really look into the great salvation He's provided for us? Because, yes, man, praise God we're saved. But when the Apostle John writes here to kind of illustrate the great love that God has for us, why didn't he say, uh, the great love of God that you've been justified? No, he's saying, I want you to look into the other areas of salvation. I want you to see that that you have not just been saved because um, he wants you to be a servant in his kingdom, but you see the great love that he's adopted you into his family. And that from this point forward, you aren't a servant, but you're a son and daughter. But we don't ever do that anymore. We don't ever try to split hairs, but friends, the scripture does. The scripture illustrates various ways that our salvation works itself out. And I would encourage you to consider this for just a moment, that if we're not willing to pay very close attention to the great work of Christ, we would gloss right past this message and really never consider, man, what great love we've been adopted into his family. We would never realize that it wasn't necessary for him to adopt us. And secondly, we never realize the great benefits and privileges that we have from adoption. We simply credit them to salvation, and, and, and rightfully so. But the second thing that we see is salvation, uh, adoption's privileges. Most of us would go ahead and consider that all these privileges just flow from our justification, just flow from our salvation that we talk about. But it doesn't. It flows from our adoption. Notice this. So the first thing that adoption privileges us is that we are able to relate to God as Father, as Abba. Have you noticed all the times the scripture makes reference to your God, your Father in heaven? We read that and we don't ever consider that he is our father because he's adopted us into his family. Yes, he is a father in the sense that he's creator God. But even more than that, we don't cry father as a distant God. We say, Abba, Daddy. If you'd like to see this illustrated really clearly, go back to the nursery after service. And when a dad walks into the room, you'll see their child more likely than not respond, Daddy. And do that thing where they sprint toward them. You know what I'm talking about? That's what we're talking about. That's not just a privilege of your salvation. That's a privilege of the fact that God has adopted you in Christ. The fact that you can cry, Abba Daddy, is because you are actually, because of the finished work of Christ, his son, his adopted son or daughter. But we just say, oh, we've been saved. That's a part of that privilege. Remember, it's not even necessary that you have this privilege. It was provided because of the great love that he loves you with. And so the first privilege is he, we were able to relate to God as Father. Secondly, He cares for our needs, that He is intimately involved. Let me illustrate this like this. When I was um, 11, I was diagnosed with uh, a cancer, a cancer called Ewing sarcoma. I had a year of chemotherapy. It was an interesting time in my life, which I will tell you now that it was a blessing. There's this moment, probably the first, uh, first couple of months, maybe the first, maybe the first month, where I was asleep in my bed. I had been through, I mean, just an endless amount of treatments that day. And my dad was sitting in the chair next to me, I mean, just weeping. I mean, you know, and it's always weird when you see your dad cry. Um, But and I I was looking at him, and and I remember him saying to me, if I could take this from you, I would. And I remember, I mean, you know, 11-year-old says, you know, it's okay. But at the same time, what great care is given for a son? What great care is given for a son or a daughter? That's, that's the relationship that God has provided for you in Christ. The love that we're considering is a love that says, I'll take this from you. I'll care for your needs. I'll bear your burdens. And so when we consider this great love as a part, the privilege is that he cares for our needs. Number three, we see that he gives us gifts. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11 says this, Even you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask? Have you ever stopped to consider that when you pray, when you go to the throne room of grace, you are actually walking in and have the privilege of entering the presence of the Most High God, but do you know at the exact same time as you're having an audience with the creator of the universe that you're having an audience with your dad? I mean, an audience with your dad. And and I'm convinced that when we walk into the throne room of grace and we do so humbly before truly the perfect holy God and we should approach him with humility that when we come to him we should understand where we're going but at the exact same time we should go with boldness knowing that I'm going to my dad I'm going to Abba I'm going to the one who has adopted me into his family it's a great privilege and when we go how much more should we be bold to ask do you think that he does not long to give you good gifts Please understand, I'm not talking about material wealth. I'm not talking about anything of that nature. I'm talking about really, truly good gifts. Gifts of, like, for instance, when we plead for souls. When was the last time you interceded for a soul and thought to myself, I'm going to my dad and pleading, Lord, give his soul. Let him come to Christ. Or when we're going through the deepest possible pain, Lord, provide remedy. Daddy, provide remedy. Heal me. Rescue me from this. Deliver me. And we go to a all-powerful father to request these things. And what is foolish is because we do not understand our position that he's provided in us, we go fearful that he might just kind of shoo us away. He won't. He's your dad. He's adopted you. He cares for your needs, and he desires to give you good and perfect gifts. And so as we can continue to consider the privileges of adoption, the Fourth one is being led by the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to talk really quickly through this passage, but I just want to highlight these. And um, I I love Romans chapter 8. I I would almost like to label Romans chapter 8 the foolishness of the gospel. Because there's so much richness in this text that I remember reading it as a 15, 16 year old and thinking to myself, this simply can't be. And so Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Would you like to know the greatest identifier that you've been adopted into the family of God? That you're led by the Spirit of God. It is a privilege of your adoption. It is a privilege that that flows from the great love that God has offered you in Christ. And what a joy it is that he does not Abandon his children. They're led by the Spirit, and you've noticed this. And we're going to talk about this later a little bit. But if you're adopted into the family, if you're a son or a daughter, you begin to be led like them. You begin to kind of walk in the step that they walk. I I take on attributes, for instance, of my dad. And so, because of that, when we look at this being led by the Spirit, what we're talking about here is is a God, a Father, leading his children along, taking care of them, providing their paths. What a great joy! What a great privilege we have in our adoption. What a great privilege we have in our adoption that we have been led by the Spirit. Now, number five is the one that I consider the most foolish of them all. Verse, I mean, uh, number five is our inheritance. We have the privilege of an inheritance. Ugh. Listen to this. I mean, Romans eight seventeen, And if we're children, then heirs. Heirs of God. I just want to stop right there. To consider being an heir of God is something that you know, I can begin to wrap my brain around to an extent. The next phrase is what gets me. Heir of God, okay. Co-heir with Christ. Huh. I don't think there's a verse in the Bible that has stumped me as much. Not because, not because it's not true. It's, it's very true. But the, 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 the fact that it's true is what, is what gets me. If this was written by any man, if this was not recorded in the Scripture, I would look at them and call them a fool. How dare you say that we would have a similar inheritance that Christ has. That's far, far too good. The beautiful thing is it is. It's far too good, but it's a privilege bought by Christ. And it is a privilege that flows from the fact that the great love that God has for you and adopting you, his desire is to bless you throughout all eternity. Ephesians chapter 2 says that the purpose of our redemption is that he might show the immeasurable greatness of his grace and kindness toward us. That throughout all of eternity, we are going to get the grand privilege of enjoying the grace that God has offered to us. And he says, I want you to to have eternity so that you can begin to fathom the depths of my love and grace. This is the inheritance that we're looking at here. It is a great reward that we're looking forward to. But the grandest of our inheritance, the, the best thing that adoption has to offer is a dad saying, come vacation with me. Stay a while. It's a grand privilege that we have. And then lastly, not lastly, just two more. It's hot up here. Um, is that the privilege of adoption is that he disciplines us. You know, thought about leaving this one out. No, I didn't. Um, I love this one. I don't think there's any more clear of an identifier that you're someone's son than when they are spanking you. I mean, I'm genuinely, if, if, like, if I'm walking down Walmart aisles and I see someone spanking a child, my first thought is, that's his dad. But that makes sense, doesn't it? The fact that you're disciplining someone is because you love them. Notice this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he, he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is an indicator of your adoption as well as a privilege of it. Now, all of the, the children in here and parents who remember their discipline, think to yourself the moments that you had when your mom or dad said, I do this because I love you, and you laugh. I actually remember looking at my mom and saying, "No, you don't," um, and then I got spanked again. Um, and, um, and but what great love it is that your parents discipline to you. That's a labor for them. It takes energy. That it's painful for them, but they do it because they desire to see you act right and live a life unto God. The exact same reason that the father does it, because he wants to expedite, so to say. Your conformity to Christ, your sanctification, the purpose of God disciplining you is that you might be more rapidly conformed to the image of Jesus. Isn't that a good privilege of adoption? And it's only a good privilege if you actually desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus. If we find ourselves slapping away the hand of God when he disciplines us, it is because our heart does not long to look like Jesus. That was extra. And so the last one, and I love this one, is familial ties within the church. The privilege of adoption is that every single one of us if we be in Christ no matter where we are whether we be here on a Sunday morning or some random place in the world I mean we have we, our, half of our staff right now is in India or other parts of the world sharing the gospel and they go and many of them already have brothers and sisters in Christ there that they have relationships with based on the fact that their father is God one and the same We have familial ties within the church because we have been adopted into the family of God. The reason that we love the brothers, the reason that we enjoy each other's company is because by God's grace, we have the same head. We have Christ and we follow him faithfully. It's what identifies us. One of the joys of traveling to me now is running into Christians. I um, went skiing in Denver, or not Denver, somewhere around there, and, uh, my flight got canceled and I had to figure out how I was going to get home. So I took a bus ride or a car ride to the next, uh, airport. And I get in the car with these two people, one from California and one from Denver. And, um, I'm in the car and I'm like, y'all are stuck with me for like four hours. Um, so y'all about to hear the gospel. And, um, and so I start to, to talk with this, with this guy. And, uh, like five minutes into the conversation, he's telling me about the work of Christ in his life. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. This is going to be a good ride. And so me and him are just celebrating the work of Christ. We're talking about the joy it is to, to, to faithfully follow the Lord and see fruit from labor. And, and, and I'm thinking to myself, how good is our God that He says, wherever you go, if you be in Christ, you have family there. You have family there. What a joy. And so when we consider the great love of God, my prayer is this, that we consider adoption. That we consider the fact that we've been brought into this loving relationship with Christ. That He says, I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going, to, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to reconcile you to myself. But far past that, I'm going to adopt you into my family. And I'm going to give you all these great privileges about being a son or a daughter. Now here's my frustration. Half the time, we don't ever stop to consider these things. You want to have more faithful service to the Lord? Realize that you're a son or daughter. Meditate on that great love. Friends, theology affects the way you live. What we believe about God affects the way that we walk. And for some reason, the church has decided that theology doesn't matter anymore. It does. It's vitally important. Because the doctrine of adoption, all these things flow from that. And when we want to consider the great love that God has for us, this agape that needs further explanation, the Apostle John says, I command you, see, meditate on, pay very close attention to this. Pay very close attention to the deep things that God has provided for you. And when we do not, we cheat ourselves. We cheat ourselves. We cheat ourselves out of faithful service, we cheat ourselves out of deeper love for God, and frankly, we cheapen the we, we cheat ourselves from affectionate, loving, joyous, glorious time in the Word of God. So those are the privileges of adoption. What manner of love, right? How great. I love the um, the third verse of that great hymn, The Love of God. It says, if we with ink the oceans filled, and were the skies of parchment made, if every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Drain the oceans dry. It's a grand privilege. But That's not all that the apostle points us to. He continues and he says, notice a couple of things about this adoption. What it does, how it affects your sociology, so to, so to say, the way that you live, the way that you interact with others. So number four is, it is a conforming or sanctifying love. Notice the language you find at the second sentence you find in verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Notice the dramatic change here. We at one point being ruined sinners who identified more with the world. I mean, I love, I love Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I mean, is that not the most horrifying verse that's who we were. And all of a sudden, we are brought out of that. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. But we've been made alive together with Christ. And the world that we identified with doesn't even recognize us any longer. <clears throat> Brief statement. This is in regard to holiness. And this is something that we have cheapened to not watching rated R movies, to not getting drunk, and various other social issues. Holiness is not just not doing things. It is pursuing passionately to be obedient to Christ in all of His commands. And holiness is the number one identifier of the church. It's what makes us look weird in society. And frankly, we don't look weird enough anymore. We are so conformed to this world but my sweet friends by God's grace he's adopted us into his family and he says you shouldn't even be able to like when people look at you they should be weirded out and I'm super weird so that I like that and so by, by God's grace he says you don't look like the world anymore the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him the reason that you are not known is because you are identified in Christ not the world any longer And so the first thing you see here is we are... It makes us unrecognizable to the world following... uh, In verse 2 it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. So the effects of adoption being God's children says this. Ah, this is just a sweet verse. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him. What a joyous hope we have as children. Oh, how sweet it is that we rest comfortably knowing that when all is said and done, we will lay eyes on Christ and we will be like Him. That God will... Finish the good work that he began. That is a fruit, a privilege of adoption. It flows from that. The fact that we're no longer like the world, that holiness should be the thing that identifies us. And far past that, that our hearts should be longing for the, the, the moment where Christ returns and we lay eyes on him. I love First Peter chapter 1, I think. Um, and it says, um, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. I love that word. Do you know why? Because it it essentially says it shouldn't be anywhere else. Set your hope fully. By God's grace, He has provided us a great hope to look forward to. The day where us as sons and daughters in Christ will look at our heavenly Father and say, Yes, complete the good work you began. And we will be like Him. So we have something to look forward to as children. We long for that Abba moment, that daddy moment where he arrives and we get the opportunity to flee to him and jump in his arms and celebrate the fact that, yes, I am with my dad now forever. What a joyous moment that the adopted son and daughter has. Notice verse 3. This hope should provoke us to purity. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's go back to this conversation of holiness real quickly. A son or daughter of God who is deeply, passionately longing to see the great God and King return longs, strives, passionately pursues holiness and purity. Now, let me clarify. If you are in Christ, and you are not passionately pursuing purity, there are two things at work. Number one, you have not set your hope, your joy, everything that you are, your identity is not wrapped up in the person of Jesus, and you need to repent. Number two, you're not in Christ at all. Forgive me for being so blunt. But by God's grace, He promises us, that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus. And I I do not take God's promises lightly. If we do not long and strive for holiness and purity in our daily lives, it very likely means that we are not adopted children. It very likely means that we have not been justified. But I say with great joy, the door is not closed. By God's grace, He has offered us the grand privilege of being adopted. If only we receive and believe in His name. And so, sweet friends, if you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, repent, come to Jesus. For he will not only reconcile you to the Father, but he will make you a son and daughter. And all the privileges that we've discussed will be yours. And you can go forth into this world and proclaim what manner of love. And for those of us who are in Christ, we've got one more point for you. It is an enduring love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter, lays out that The three that remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I am convinced that the reason the greatest of these is love is because love will not end. Faith will fade. We will see Christ, and our faith will not be necessary any longer. We hope, we long day in and day out for the fact for Christ's return and being able to dwell with him eternally. But oh, sweet friends, love will never fade. Nothing can separate you from it. If you are an adopted child, then you rest comfortably knowing that all your days you will dine at the king's table. It is an enduring love. So we, as believers in Christ, must go from here proclaiming one great message. What great love.